Well, good evening. Uh, my name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're going through the book of James this summer. And um, James was the first book of the Bible that I really was able to, to get into and read. I became a Christian by reading um, C.S. Lewis, and then when I turned to the Bible after reading him, it was really hard to, um, to understand and very hard to accept some of the things. There's some very hard sayings in the Bible. Um, but someone directed me to the book of James as a place to start because it's very practical. Uh, it's, it's about wisdom. It's kind of like the Proverbs of the New Testament. And um, this particular passage is a passage that I especially loved. It reminded me of a uncle that I had growing up who I admired so much. His name was Uncle Ben. His, actually, his name was Benjamin Milner. And uh, he was also um, trained to be a Presbyterian pastor. But uh, he became an atheist in the course of studies, and he ended up being a professor. And he reminded me a little bit of the professor in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you've read that book, he was that kind of guy who, um, in our family gatherings at the beach, where we'd discuss something with all these aunts and uncles and cousins, maybe 30 people in a room, um, he would be the one who was kind of the, the model of, uh, of rationality and logic. And his, his words were always very objective. And uh, he kind of took the emotion out of the room. He was very uh, impartial. Uh, he was open to reason. And um, he was exactly the opposite of my experience growing up with Christians. I didn't know a lot of Christians personally, but from what I saw on TV, from what I heard about them, um, from other people, uh, they seemed to me people who were irrational. And they spoke with a lot of emotion. They were really leading uh, by emotion and often anger. They're very volatile. They, they seem very self-certain. Um, they seem very biased, closed-minded. And I don't think I'm the only one who's experienced Christians that way. Uh, probably some of you here uh, grew up also experiencing Christians that way. That uh, Christians are kind of hard-headed people and they're kind of rude, quarrelsome, obnoxious, hypercritical and that is precisely what James is talking about here. And he's saying that, that the people of God have got to be the opposite of those things. That that, that, that has no place um, within true biblical Christianity. That wisdom from above, verse 17, uh, is pure and peaceable and gentle and open to reason and impartial and sincere. And when I look around at um, pastors today that are celebrities that are making... Um, you know, talking points on the news, on TV. I just don't see that list. And somehow it seems that churches feel okay about putting someone in a position of great authority. They don't have any of those qualifications. They seem to not mind the fact that those things are absent. When you look at the um, qualifications for leaders in Paul's letters uh, to his churches, these are the very things he's asking them to, to be like. People, these uh, leaders are pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, impartial, sincere. And I thought growing up that those were, those were things that I would describe as reasonable or rational or logical or sensible. What I didn't realize is that this is what uh, the Bible describes as wisdom, that that's the right word for these things. And that um, it wasn't so much Uncle Ben's uh, intellectual arguments that he could form a, a beautiful syllogism or could follow a complex argument. It was more that he, he was intellectually virtuous. Uh, that he had a, a kind of a virtue of the mind that I think is described here by James. You know, if you know Richard Dawkins, famous atheist, or Ben Shapiro, famous talk show host, these, these guys are absolutely brilliant. Uh, Christian apologists, 
like James White, same way. Brilliant guys, know all this uh, information. I would not call them wise. I would say that these things that James is talking about here are lacking. And many Christian apologists, I have to say, uh, who are trying to defend the faith, they lack a lot of these characteristics. And so, no matter how brilliant their arguments are, they don't have the meekness of wisdom, is what James calls it in verse 13. They don't have that peaceable, gentle uh, nature where they're listening, uh, they're slow to speak, they're slow to anger, they're impartial, they're sincere. And I want to look at, at wisdom. And the opposite of wisdom, of course, is, uh, is foolishness. James calls that uh, from below. And then he calls the wisdom from above. So I want to look at first what is from below, which is earthly. Uh, it's not spiritual. James even calls it demonic because it's tainted with evil. So you've got the foolishness, which is not, uh, like, it's not silly or funny. It's actually dark and disturbing. And then you have uh, wisdom in contrast to that. So I want to look at those two things, foolishness and wisdom. And um, the fool in his thinking or her thinking is, is very flat. Uh, un, unspiritual just means it, it, the, the fool is not aware of the things of the spirit. The fool does not walk in the spirit, is not aware of the invisible realm, uh, is very much caught up in the here and now. It's earthly. It's two-dimensional. There's no sense of transcendence, uh, like the Mount Everest uh, parts of the mind that go beyond uh, the merely physical world, uh, the depths of holiness. If Proverbs uh, 14.9, and the Proverbs have a lot to say about fools, it says the fool mocks the guilt offering. The guilt offering was just one of the offerings of Israel. It was a sacred thing. It was a sacred part of the Israelite experience. And so a fool is someone that sees the Lord's Supper or baptism and just scoffs and thinks that's a bunch of, you know, that's, that's idiocy. That's uh, ridiculous. Um, as my uncle would say, that's tomfoolery. That stuff uh, is not to be taken seriously. And so uh, for fools, the center of gravity, what is really serious uh, are things like politics and entertainment and fashion and grades and business plans and investments or shopping, fitness. What is really taken seriously are, are all the wrong things, as all of the spiritual things and transcendent things and holy things are jettisoned. And so once uh, God is displaced from the center of reality, uh, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's Psalm 14.1. The fool says in his heart, no God. And therefore, because the fool has completely um, bracketed out the whole question of God, um, therefore they turn to themselves and they begin to trust their own intuitions and their own thinking. And so another proverb about the fool is uh, Proverb twenty-eight twenty-six: Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. Think about that. Whoever trusts in his own mind, if you trust in the way that you naturally think, or just your two intuitions about things. Um, and I often do that. On the, on the Myers-Briggs, I'm a major N. I'm not an S, I'm an N. And that means I just have these strong intuitions and feelings about things. And the, it is the fool that, uh, that trusts in his own thinking, in his own mind. We, we trust in ourselves with all of our hearts. We lean on our own understandings. I googled wisdom and looked at some of the images that popped up, and one of the ones was uh, an image of, a, a, I think, a person's face, and it said, believe in yourself. Um, that, as if that is wisdom, believe in yourself. 
That's exactly what the Proverbs are saying is the fool's motto. Uh, the, the fool trusts in his own mind. They believe in themselves. Fools, therefore, because they believe in themselves, they generally think they're right about almost everything. A fool is someone who is, who is never in doubt, uh, who is always very self-certain. Um, it says in Proverbs twelve fifteen, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes. And so one of the ways that you know you're being a fool is when you're having a very hard time admitting that you're wrong. And I could be wrong, this could be sexist, but I think men struggle with this more than women. Um, I know I do. Uh, My family certainly accuses me of this. The other day, um, we were hiking, and um, I said to the children very confidently, we have have three miles to go. And then they said, no, we have two miles to go. I said, no, it's three, trust me. And then we came to a sign that says two, two miles to go. <laughs> and then they said, see, Dad, you're wrong. And I said, um, even then, I, I couldn't say I was wrong. I, I, I don't know what I said. I said, maybe the sign's wrong. But uh, I, I had a hard time admitting those two devastating words, uh, which is just to simply say, I'm wrong. And the fool has a very, very hard time. Uh, because it says in Proverbs 1.7, the fool despises instruction. So a foolish person uh, has a real inability to learn. And that could go if you're a student in a class. You know, maybe you're even very young. Maybe you're a kindergartner or a first grader. And you don't ever like to listen to the teacher. And you make fun of the teacher all the time. And you hate to actually learn things because you always think you're right about what you think. And uh, the Bible would say that's foolish. And of course that continues to adulthood. Uh, that fools despise Instruction. I, I find it amazing when the media criticizes a politician. And they do this all the time. They, they criticize the politician for, for changing her mind about an issue. They're like, see, she changed her mind about that. As if that was the stupidest thing you could ever do would be to change your mind. Like maybe you actually learned information that made you realize that policy A was wrong. And so now I accept policy B. But the willingness to have your mind change is actually a sign of wisdom. And it is the fool that would never change his or her mind. Because the fool loves to just express themselves constantly. It says in Proverbs 18.2, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only expressing his opinion. So fools uh, love to uh, spout off or or spew out um, uh, their wisdom, their so-called wisdom. They love to pontificate and uh, lecture and clear their throats. And let everyone around them know uh, what it is they're thinking. And, and hoping that people are taking notes you know, as they talk. Or at least mentally taking notes. Because fools just love to give full vent to their spirit as Proverbs 29.11 says. The fool gives full vent to his spirit. So um, think about what I've said so far. And uh, the ways in which you live that are foolish and uh, especially just being so slow to listen, so sure of yourself, uh, so unable to learn, so much loving the sound of your own voice that you mostly talk all the time and you have a really hard time paying attention to someone. That's not just a character flaw. The Bible says that's foolishness. Uh, As someone once said, you don't learn anything when you're talking. You're learning when you're listening carefully to other people and what they're saying. And, uh, and that's, that's what the Bible calls wisdom, learning. 
Another aspect of foolishness that James concentrates on here is um, selfish ambition, which he links to bitter jealousy because they often go together. The more ambitious you are, uh, at least selfishly ambitious, the more you're going to feel jealousy when someone else has that quality in spades that you don't have. And so verse 14 says that um, foolishness uh, is um, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Because you want to get ahead of someone, uh, you might want better grades than someone, or you want to be in better shape than someone, or you want to eat healthier than someone. You want to um, be a better mother or father than someone. You want to be a closer friend to someone else than this other person that you're uh, competing with. Um, Someone told me today, comparison is the thief of joy. And when you start to compare because you want to be the best, um, then uh, you become bitterly jealous. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Another hallmark of foolishness. And this this is um, expressed in no place more than in virtue. This is very dangerous because virtue looks, well, looks virtuous. It looks uh, like something you could never have too much of. But, but um, one of the parts of selfish ambition is, um, is trying to be more virtuous than someone else. Or trying to seem more virtuous than someone else. And that's really the most dangerous kind of selfish ambition. Is the ambition to be the most virtuous. It's certainly the one that got the Pharisees. It's, uh, it's probably the one that got James when he was growing up. You can imagine when James was growing up, his older brother um, was Jesus. And so, growing up, think about how many times James said to Jesus, you think you're so perfect. And Jesus was like, well, actually, I am. You know, he was sinless. Can you imagine growing up with a sinless older brother? Um, the, 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 the selfish ambition and jealousy that, that uh, James is talking about here, he must have known very, very well from experience. Especially in a household of you know, strict Pharisees. He, this was a household... Joseph would have been uh, a Pharisee. And so uh, James and uh, Jesus were both raised where virtue was number one. And you can imagine how bitterly uh, jealous James was of Jesus. So think about, again, how you fall into the foolishness of selfish ambition and jealousy. And you've got to realize here, these are usually things that are very good. These are, these are like the best parts of yourself that you then begin to compete with other people about. And uh, you, you even begin to boast about these things. Not, not often directly, because Americans don't like anyone to boast directly, but we have a really, uh, especially among Christians, a very uh, you know, complex methods uh, of boasting in a very quiet way, where we say these things about ourselves that are um, kind of subtle. Um, we don't um, broadcast things. Uh, we... We, we just hint at ways in which we boast. Verse 14 says simply, do not boast. And the, the theological dictionary of the New Testament says the word James uses there is found only in the Bible. Uh, because in, the, in the, the Greek world, the Roman world, this was not a vice. Boasting was not a vice. Christians have uniquely made this idea of boasting into a, into a vice. Um, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says it, it, this, this word brings out strongly the element of comparison. Indeed, of comparative superiority expressed in boasting. Triumphant comparison with other people. And again, think about the foolishness there that plagues us all. Where you take that thing about yourself 
that you find most appealing and you begin to compare yourself to other people. And you find ways to express it. Uh, People can do it in incredibly creative ways to make it look like they're not boasting. But you find some way to take that virtue about yourself and you get it out there and you let people know about it. C.S. Lewis said, we don't boast about being rich or clever or good looking. We boast about being richer or clever or better looking than the rivals that we have set up in our minds for ourselves. He goes on to say, if everyone else became equally rich, clever, or good-looking, there would be nothing to boast about. It's all about the comparison. The pleasure of being above someone. This is the chief cause of misery in every nation, family, and I would add church, since the world began. That sounds like a strong claim, but think about why people who boast a lot are always colliding creating disorder. That's the word James uses. Where there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there will be disorder, verse 16. If you imagine, you know, those bobble-headed toys that you sometimes see that, um, like often with sports figures, and they'll they'll have an uh, exaggeratedly large head that kind of swivels on a spring. Bobblehead toys. So imagine you have a party uh, where everyone is a bobble-headed toy, and they're kind of trying to slip past each other, and their heads are just always colliding. That's kind of the way that... Boasting creates disorder and selfish ambition creates disorder because we're always banging into each other's egos and uh, it's like we're all very, very sensitive about our egos and we're always boasting so we're just banging into each other all the time. Um, The word for disorder is a political word meaning unrest or turmoil or revolution. And so um, this is what often creates conflicts in families, like he says, in in nations. I mean... Just think about uh, Putin and Trump or um, you know, any great world leader. A lot of the conflict's just going to be when, they're, when heads just kind of bang against one another. A lot of these things are just personal when countries begin to clash. And um, I think if you have a conflict with someone right now, um, you, you should really think about whether the conflict is coming simply because you have a big head. And maybe it's not really some issue. You think, it, you think it's some issue... Um, but it's really maybe not the issue, but just your own selfish ambition, your own boasting, your bitter jealousy. Um, the, the thing that creates disorder is foolishness. And the thing that creates peace is wisdom. Again, being pure and peaceable and gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruit. That's what creates peace. Shalom. Which means uh, in the Bible, integration within yourself, with other people around you, and with God. That's what shalom means in the Bible. Peace is not just that I'm doing okay with my wife. It's that uh, I am okay with myself, with God, and therefore with other people around me. And that's what I want to look at next, is the way that um, wise people create peace. That's how you know a wise person, is that people, uh, that peace is kind of always being brought into any social situation where this wise person goes. So, Look at verse 18. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I would even be willing to say this part of James is mostly about peace. And so uh, we've looked at the way foolishness creates disorder. Now um, peace created by wisdom. And as I talk about this, just think about the way that you, if you could be wiser, you could create so much more peace uh, within your family or within your neighborhood, within your friend group, within the church. The way that wisdom can create peace. 
The, the, the metaphor here that James uses about the harvest and sowing, it's pretty simple. The metaphor is a farmer who takes these seeds, which would in this case be nuggets of wisdom, and the farmer throws them out, and then a few months later, there's a crop of uh, peace that comes up. Beautiful harvest of peace. And so the, the idea for us is, um, what seeds of wisdom do you throw out in certain settings, in certain social settings? What seeds of wisdom could you scatter um, within your family this week? Uh, think about if you're a child, you know, if you pick on your sister or your brother at a meal. A lot of that comes from foolishness, and that creates so much disorder. If, if you pick on um, your brother or sister when you're 47 at a family reunion, that creates disorder. When you compete with a sibling or a cousin, um, that creates disorder. So in families, when a husband and a wife um, are, are fighting um, massive disorder, when they're being foolish, there's huge disorder. Think about at church where you disagree strongly with someone about how something should be done. And maybe you hear people that are saying things about each other that are not kind. Um, how could you generate peace there through wisdom, through purity, um, gentleness, impartiality, being open to reason, um, being full of mercy, uh, being full of good fruit. Think about, um, I don't know if you've ever had this happen where you go out to dinner or something with a couple, or you're at their house and they just start fighting, and it gets very tense and awkward and uh, uncomfortable, and you want, you're tempted to change the subject or to pretend it's not happening, but how could you be um, wise what would a wise person do in a situation like that? I don't think they would sweep it under the rug. Um, because a wise person, uh, again, is always producing peace. They're peaceable. And um, the same thing with a political debate. Let's say you're, you're with some friends and you're having this really heated political debate. Um, and today, I mean, today it happens all the time. I, I hear that from statistics, apparently friend groups, uh, it, it's affecting groups of friends and even affects churches the way that politics is creating disorder and disruption. But what if in a really heated political debate, you could be the wise person, the non-anxious presence that diffuses um, all of this tension, much of it that comes from foolishness. A lot of that stuff comes from selfish ambition and wanting to be a, a, um, to, to kind of pro project a certain uh, type of, of person. Virtue signaling, I don't know if you've heard of that word, I think it's a great phrase, virtue signaling. So much of the statements that I'm so indignant about this, that, or the other is simply virtue signaling. Just showing that you're the right type of person. And in how many political debates could you change the whole tenor of the conversation if you were open to reason, impartial, and sincere? And what if Christians were known for that on the internet? That they were the people in, um, in you know, Facebook discussions or whatever, where they were the peacemakers. They were the gentle ones. They were the ones that were sincere about what they were saying. I, James 3.17, I keep quoting it because um, it's the first verse I ever really memorized. I, I absolutely love this verse. I, it's the, in the Bible that I used to have, it was one of those Gideon uh, fake leather green Bibles that were tiny. And they had the Psalms, the Proverbs, and the New Testament. And that little thing, I've still got that Bible. It, that part is just underlined in four different colors. 
Because that, for some reason, just spoke to me as what I was looking for. Um, that's what I wanted in faith, is that kind of wisdom. And one of the, I think one of the reasons I loved it so much is because before I became a Christian, I was very unteachable. I mean, obviously, from the example earlier, I'm still not great at it. But um, beforehand, uh, I, my intellectual boasting and academic ambition were just out of control. And so to, to read this stuff about being open to reason and impartial and sincere, it just broke me. Uh, it was beautiful. The, the thing I read in, in Mere Christianity was a chapter on pride, especially intellectual pride. And so he, reading this from James, it's just these two things came together. You know, uh, you may know about John Calvin. Since this is the Presbyterian Church, I expect most of you to know the name John Calvin. When you think about John Calvin, um, what images come to mind? What, um, what words come to mind? When you think about this person... If you were at a discussion with John Calvin, what would his expression be? And how would he talk? And what kind of, what kind of intellectual disposition do you think John Calvin had? Um, probably the answer that depends very much on the followers of Calvin that you've met. In which case, it's probably a negative answer. It's probably something about being smug and self-certain and absolutely uh, uh, kind of belligerent. And in fact, listen to this quote from John Calvin. This is how he described his conversion experience. He said, God, by a sudden sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind into a teachable frame. That's how he described his conversion. He went from being unteachable and a fool and unable to be instructed to being someone uh, who who had the meekness of wisdom. He he says, uh, God brought this sudden conversion and subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame, a mind that was more hardened in such matters than might have been expected from one at my early period of life. I think he was in his 20s. He was probably like me, just incredibly arrogant and thinking he was right about everything. And the people around him were always wrong. And, uh, and Calvin says that for, for Calvin, conversion becoming teachable, it's the same thing. It's like suddenly you, you realize, um, I've got a lot to learn. And I need you, and I need you, and I need you to instruct me. And um, again, this is, this is a huge part of following Christ. Proverbs 9, 9. Teach a righteous man, and he will keep increasing in learning. Proverbs 12, 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. Proverbs 13, 18. Whoever heeds reproof is honored. Just think about whether you're like that. I mean, are you someone that is known for being teachable and listening well and can change your mind if someone is persuasive? Or are you just stuck? You know, it's apparently, if you just keep thinking the same thing again and again and again and blocking out other things, pretty soon you can't do anything but think that thing. Just kind of like it wears a groove in your mind. And so are you willing to be, have your mind changed about something? There's a, a great book about the childhood of Jesus uh, by Anne Rice. And yes, she's the one who wrote all the vampire books, but she became a Christian later in life And she wrote a trilogy of books about Jesus. And the first one was about his childhood. And my favorite thing about that book is the way she portrays Joseph. Because whoever thinks about Joseph? Not many people. I've never really read anything much about Joseph or seen him portrayed in movies. He's just kind of a very forgettable character. But but Anne Rice portrays him as a model of wisdom. That that Jesus' dad would be wise makes a lot of sense. And I'm just going to read two quotes. I had a ton of quotes to read, but I'll just read two. Um... It says, Joseph spoke. Remember this, he said. 
He looked from James to me to little Joseph to my cousins. Oh, by the way, this is written from the perspective of Jesus. Joseph spoke. Remember this, he said. He looked from James to me to little Joseph to my cousins who stared up at him. Remember, he said, never lift your hand to defend yourself or to strike. Be patient. If you must speak, be simple. And then a little later, it says, um, the men were not themselves. They were full of anxiety. Even Cleopas was quiet. But when I looked to Joseph, as I always did at such times, he was steady. He had taken out a little book to read, a little bound book with pages that were cut. And he was whispering to himself. What is it, I asked him. Samuel, he answered. I'm reading about the story of David, he said. Now, there are many, many other quotes, but it just gives you a little window into the wisdom of this man, the father of Jesus. And, of course, the son that he raised uh, was the wisest man to ever live. That, that verse, um, that is Jesus. This, the meekness of wisdom. He said, I am meek and lowly in heart. Learn of me. Uh, he was entirely open to reason. He was entirely impartial. He was sincere. Uh, he dispersed any disorder wherever he went. He would ask questions about people. He would tell stories to people. He would always disperse the disorder around him. There was no jealousy in him. Uh, his very famous cousin John, he felt no jealousy towards John. He didn't boast. He gave all the glory to his father. He had no selfish ambition. His secret ambition was to give his life away. He, he lived to die. And so when you think about that verse uh, about someone who's pure and peaceable and gentle and open to reason and full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, sincere, that is Jesus. And he didn't do that so that he could get up in your face and say, why can't you be wise like I am? A lot of, uh, a lot of churches uh, or um, parents or, or teachers will Treat Jesus' wisdom like that, where why can't you be wise like Jesus? He was wise, now why can't you be wise like that? And that's not why he became wise. He didn't, uh, God didn't become a human uh, and grew, he didn't become a human that grew wise in order to shame us or to uh, look down upon us or to make us feel bad about how foolish we are. He did this to give us his wisdom that he kind of created for us. And that's why James says it's a wisdom from above, because it's, it's a wisdom that my brother had, is what James would say. James would say, I'm, I am channeling my brother's wisdom. And uh, he meant that quite literally. It says in, in Luke 2.52 that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor. So when he was little, he wasn't as wise as he was when he was older. Jesus learned wisdom through what he suffered. Uh, he grew every day wiser and wiser. It says in Colossians 2.3 that in him were hidden all the treasures of wisdom. So he made this little child became a wiser and wiser and wiser child. And he did it, he did it to give us this mind that we could tap into. That uh, through this meal, actually, that he, we could channel him, so to speak. And it says in Philippians 2.5, Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Like all the minds, like all of our minds are attached to this mega mind. Have this mind among yourselves, which is already yours in Christ Jesus. He became wise to kind of transplant his, his mind into the skull of fools like me, to make people like me teachable. Um, in in um, November of last year, it was actually November 17th, my wife's birthday. I remember this crazy announcement. Uh, there was an a Italian 
surgeon uh, named Sergio Canavaro. And you remember, remember this. He, he claimed to have um, been ready to perform the first human brain transplant. Anybody hear this story where this guy, um, I don't think anything has come of this since then, but he said he was ready to take a, a, a person who was brain dead, who had a healthy brain, but it was attached to a body that was basically dead. He was going to cut off that head. He's going to take that brain. And then someone else had a healthy body, but whose mind was full of a disease of some kind, um, just some kind of crippling, a mental disorder. He's going to take that brain and put it into this body and then sew it back on that body. And then they would have the brain of this person over here who was brain dead. So the first head transplant. Now, scientists, I read some stuff on the Internet. It seems like that's been pretty severely debunked. I don't think that's going to happen. But um, there is something, although that's very kind of gruesome and uh, don't make too much of a literal connection here, but, but there is something like that going on with, with, with Christ where uh, we kind of give him our foolishness and he takes uh, that and then he gives us his wisdom. I mean, the whole gospel is about substitution. And, um, and so that, that's true about wisdom too. That at this meal, this great exchange happens every single week which is kind of a wisdom transplant where he kind of immersed himself in all that is unearthly, all that is demonic, all that is unspiritual. Jesus lived in, amongst fools his whole life. Imagine how painful that was. And he actually was completely destroyed and killed because of uh, jealousy and selfish ambition. That's what, that's what took him out. And he, he actually becomes disorder on the cross, this mangled body, uh, crucified body. He becomes vile. In a sense. But, but he does all those things so that he can give us the wisdom that he learned growing up as a child. And, and again, there's a way in which at this, at this meal, in a, in, a, in a very mysterious sense, we, we tap into the very wisdom of Christ. As he takes all the consequences of our foolishness, he says, here's my wisdom. I, God became a man to grow wise, to give you his wisdom. And so, on the night he was betrayed... Uh, the wisest man who ever lived took bread and he broke it and said, This is my body.